Buddhist geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 105, The Forest Dwelling Yogi. Reggie Ray, Buddhist scholar and teacher in the lineage of Chogyung Trungpa Rinpoche, joins us to discuss the role of retreat in modern practice as well as the shamanic dimension of Vajrayana Buddhism. This is part one of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or a small recurring donation by visiting buddhadharma20.com slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vince Horn. I'm in the studio live today with my friend and compadre in the Dharma, Ryan Olke. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. Glad to have you back. So today, I am extremely excited and delightful to have Reggie Ray here. We've tried several times to get him on the show and finally succeeded. There's a lot we could say about Reggie, so I just want to share a few things. He has been a longtime practitioner, student of Trungpa Rinpoche. He has founded the Dharma Ocean um, organization, a place for studying and the teachings of uh, Trungpa Rinpoche. And Reggie has also been a teacher at uh, Naropa University for how many years, Reggie? 34. 34, from the very beginning, right? Very beginning, yeah, 1974. And a teacher in the Master's Indo-Tibetan Buddhism program on the history-religion side. Oh, I'm in all the programs that we've offered over all those years. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that, and that you've been participating in both those sides, because you... It was used to be different for the two programs there, like the courses and the teachers, and but you've been there since the beginning, so. Yes, I am. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Great. And um, what are some of the courses that you've taught there, just to give people a sample? Well, I've taught everything from Sanskrit to early Indian history to Tibetan Buddhism. I've taught uh, meditation courses, mm-hmm. I mean, you name it. Probably yeah. over those years, I've taught 40 or 50 courses. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Yeah, and everyone who's been listening to us for a long time knows that I've been in the program and I absolutely love the Naropa courses. It has to be the best program, in my opinion, in the, in the country for studying Buddhism, mm-hmm. both from an academic and from an actual practitioner standpoint. Mm-hmm. And uh, speaking of academic, you've written several books that have been popular both in the kind of uh, average Joe and Jane realm and also into the academic realm. We've mentioned them on an occasion here. Um, so the two uh, wonderful books that Vince and I have both read is uh, Indestructible Truth, and the secret of the Vajra world, which I always recommend to anybody who's new to Tibetan Buddhism. Yeah. Like I need to know more about it. Or I want to learn more. Yeah. Wonderful overview mm-hmm. of uh, the Tibetan tradition. And then a, a slightly more geeky book is um, where you cover the three tiered model. That's Tibetan Buddhist saints in India. Buddhist saints, Buddhist saints in India. In India. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I've read portions of it for my classes, but the three tiered model we've mentioned several times in our different interviews. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, it's a little bit denser read, but it's good. The, the parts I've read of it for sure. And it's won several awards for the... Very, very dense. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's an academic monograph. Right. And it's particularly innovative because you included a third type of practitioner, not just the lay and the monk, but the, the forest-dwelling meditator. Yeah, well, most of uh, academic study is about texts and institutions and uh, visible rituals and uh, mm-hmm. lay people. And what I feel, you know, as a, a practicing Buddhist and a person who's been involved with the practice lineage in Tibetan Buddhism is that the real source of creativity in Buddhism has always come from the marginalized practitioners who live far away from the urban centers and mm-hmm. far away from the uh, big establishments. And so I wrote a book about that. 
Nice. And I think that's a, it's a good jumping point for our first question. Your students say that you've been on retreat every year. You go on retreat for like three months at least or a significant amount of time. And the reason why I've so much appreciated you bringing that model to the front uh, of Dharma in the West is that I think that allows more options for the Western practitioner. Because at first, if you just look and see, you're either a lay practitioner who doesn't do very much or you give up everything and go to a monastery. It's a little bit tough for us Westerners, but this third, the fourth dwelling yogi offers more and even a combination of all three of these. And so maybe you could talk a little bit about your emphasis on, on retreat and how that appears in a Western context. Well, Trung Rinpoche, who, as you mentioned, was my principal teacher, always emphasized that for Western people, not only is the life of a sort of permanent retreat not possible, but it's actually not advisable. Mm. That uh, really the highest quotient of personal transformation comes from mixing life, a fully engaged life in the world, with solitary retreat. And solitary retreat can mean anything from one week a year uh, up to a month, up to longer, if you can do it periodically. But there's something about going back and forth from retreat where really in the beginning part of every retreat, you have to actually let go of who you are. You walk into a retreat with all kinds of ideas and experiences about who you are as a person, which um, you know we do as humans, but at the same time it ties you up. And when you go into a retreat, you have to let that go. In fact, you do let it go because after a few days, you're not getting the social reinforcement mm-hmm. that uh, we really need to maintain our sense of self, our, our ego. Uh, you let it go, and then you explore some very, very big space in the retreat experience. And then you come back into the world, and in a way, you have to start over. You have to come back in and see who you are and see what your relationships are with other people and, and how you're going to relate to your work. And it really is a different world when you come out of retreat. Often what we think is that the world that we live in is a solid world and it's a certain way. But the fact of the matter is the world that we live in is actually a world that we ourselves create out of our own expectations. And retreat, when you go in and out, is so powerful because you realize that the world is no particular way. And when you come out of retreat, you begin to discover each time the world in a different, much bigger way. So Trungpa Rinpoche really emphasized that, not only because it was the practical necessity for modern people, but that he felt it was uh, offered many, many more possibilities of insight and personal transformation than simply being a layperson or simply being in retreat all the time. Mm. So it's, it's, a, uh, it's a piece about integration that makes the difference here. So if you or being a lay practitioner, you're not really diving in and, and getting out of that context, the expectations we're constantly surrounding ourselves with. And if you're in retreat all the time, is there a difficulty in actually integrating some of your realizations or insights? Well, if you're in retreat all the time, after a while it becomes comfortable. You know, people who do long mm-hmm. retreats, say two or three year retreat, the first period of time is destabilizing and you really open up to a much bigger space in yourself. Mm-hmm. But after a while it becomes sort of a way of life. It becomes comfortable. And you know, when we are in retreat too long, we're not encountering the rawness and ruggedness of life. And what happens in ordinary life is that the depths of our unconscious are stirred up by the experiences we have in families and relationships in the mm-hmm. world. And then that becomes the integrating process. You need the material of ordinary life when you go into retreat, and you need the depth of ordinary retreat in order to take advantage of what's stirred up in the ordinary world. Mm. So you said that 
you know, regular retreat, whether it's one week, two weeks, a couple months, three months, that's good to do. But do you find that a certain amount of time seems to be optimal for Westerners? Like a certain period, like if you go for a month, you kind of get into a certain space and then leave before it gets too comfortable or does it not really matter? It just depends on where you're at in your practice. Well, I think that with the people I work with, initially they will do group retreats, which I think are important. You know, initially you need to, to learn that you actually can sit for a day or for a week or for a month. And then the next step is for people to try an individual retreat of maybe a week or 10 days. And they might do that for a year or two. But after a while, uh, if you can work your life situation out, you know, doing a month or six weeks um, is an incredible experience because you really do leave the known world behind. Mm -hmm. And after three or four or five days in retreat, you begin to explore experiences and dimensions of yourself that you don't have access to in ordinary life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, do you emphasize solitary retreats or group retreats or does, are both equal in nature or they, they provide different kinds of experiences? I guess that's be a first question. Mm -hmm. Well, we have a default in the West. We have um, a whole mental way of looking at reality that we're not even conscious of, but we have a certain idea about what it means to be a human being. We have a certain very solid sense of personal ego as modern people. We have a very denatured experience of the world. So when we simply do solitary retreat and we're not receiving teaching about meditation and its transformations... Mm -hmm we tend to default to the view that, that we have as Western people. Mm. So what I advise or what I you know, find most effective with the people I work with is that the group treat situation offers a chance to take a look, receive teachings on a daily basis, which I always do when I do retreats mm -hmm. with people, and to reconsider and uh, reformulate how we view the world and what we think. And then based on that, we can go into solitary retreat with that reformulated view and be much more open to what's occurring there and much less kind of uh, freaked out, you know, mm -hmm. when we run into new spaces. Yeah. So for my students, I like them to go back and forth, do a group retreat with me once a year, maybe do a solitary retreat once a year and then do their daily practice. Mm. Great. There's an interesting, just while you're describing that, an interesting correlate in the insight meditation community mm -hmm. where I mm -hmm. practice where oftentimes they'll have like seven or nine day retreats. Yeah or even longer, where there's yeah. a group situation, a lot yeah. of contact with the teacher and listening yeah. to Dharma. Yeah. And then they have more recently a development where they've had long-term retreat facilities that don't have really any structure. Yeah. You're just kind of there more or less on your own. It's not solitary, but it's semi-solitary. Yeah. And uh, it tends to be for people who've done quite a bit of group practice. So there seems to be a similar suggestion in the insight tradition. So it seems like there, there might be something connecting those in some way. I think so. Um, this fall, I've been doing a lot of traveling and teaching, and one of the places I taught was Spirit Rock, yeah. and I spent some time with Jack Cornfield, and yeah. he was telling me that they're doing a whole new layer of building out there, and it's going to be mostly solitary retreat. Yeah. You know, the kuti. The, the little, huts. The, the huts. Oh, yeah. I can't wait to get the huts. Which, which is very, very <laughs> exciting. It's very exciting. Yeah. yeah. So, have you found that, that this emphasis on retreat in the way that you're speaking about is, is that fairly common or not common in the Western Dharma circles? Well, I think you have to talk about the different traditions. The uh, solitary retreat of course is discussed in Tibetan Buddhism, but my experience of most of the communities is that it's not really a part of 
most practitioners' lives at this point. It's talked about, but it's not really practiced that much. Mm. And even in my own community, uh, Trungpa Rinpoche's lineage and organization, the people who actually do solitary retreats are quite a small minority. Mm. So I think the teachings are there in Tibetan Buddhism, but people aren't doing it as much as they could. And I feel it's kind of a shame because solitary retreat things, you know, if somebody has never done a solitary retreat, they have, of course, there's going to be fear, there's going to be a lot of resistance, but once somebody actually does it and they see how profound the experience is, even in a short retreat, and how much they change in ways that they actually want to mm. and are inspired to, then I don't have to talk anymore. And they just start putting it on the schedule. Mm -hmm. So the tricky part is getting Western people to really accept the idea and do it. Now, the interesting thing is the insight meditation community, which traditionally, really, you had to go to Southeast Asia to do solitary retreats. And uh, you could within the forest tradition of Theravadan Buddhism. I feel in a way they're doing a better job than we are on the Tibetan side of encouraging people and really establishing solitary retreat as part of what you guys do. Yeah. And Zen Buddhism, I don't think there's a lot of solitary retreat there, but they do so much sitting together that in a way it's uh it doesn't really matter. Yeah, it's it's probably the Rahatsu week right now. Yeah. In fact, they're yeah. probably yeah. in session right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 I've definitely noticed that, you know, talking with Vince for so long mm -hmm. that it just seems that they have it just it's easier and it's put together to be able to go on extended retreat it's, it's easier for him to find but in the tibetan tradition i found it a little bit more difficult in terms of the external structures yeah and i mean you know if you have motivated enough you can always find the way to do it yeah. yeah so why do you think it's not emphasized that much or why it's not happening is it ability to do that's not provided for people like retreat centers or huts and things like that or is it a motivational thing that kind of a, a western psyche deal that's going on where we where not more westerners go don't, don't go on retreats well, you know, I think it's a combination of a couple of things. One thing is, with all due respect, most Tibetan teachers tend to view lay people as less capable and less committed mm. than monastic people. And uh, this is something Trungpa Rinpoche really talked about quite a bit, that uh, when most Tibetan teachers teach Westerners, they tend to view them as lay people. And so th there's not as much emphasis on getting them into retreat the way they would some of their more advanced students or some mm -hmm. of their uh, monastic or, you know, yogi type students. And I think that um, that reinforces a Western tendency to be a little bit afraid of being alone and to uh, feel that, I mean, all of us are so busy. So I think both sides are not maybe doing as much as they could to mm -hmm. uh, encourage people. But the thing is, something happens in solitary retreat that doesn't happen anywhere, and even maybe in the Zendo it doesn't happen, which is you are completely on your own. Mm -hmm. And what happens is you experience a way of being human where the natural world and the, the life around the cabin and the weather and the cycles of the seasons become much, much, much more felt in your psyche and in your body. And this opens us up to a level of human experience that all of us long for, but rarely get to experience as modern people. So anybody wants to talk to me about solitary retreat, I can go on forever. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> you went into a little bit to kind of an area that I think we wanted to talk with you about, and that's using the body, not using the body, but paying attention to it and using it as a vehicle for practice. And with your integration of shamanic tradition, 
also ties into the surrounding areas. I wonder if you could just maybe kick off and talk about your experience in, in using the body and the breath and the energies and the energies surrounding you and your, and your environment and how that plays into your, into your practice and teachings. Well, as a historian of Buddhism, uh, I, it's come to my attention that we have a very unique dynamic within Buddhist tradition. And the dynamic is that Buddhism itself began, I think, as a shamanic tradition. Shamanic tradition means journeying outside of the framework of conventional culture and exploring a world that is other. The, the Buddha himself, I think, you know, was uh, inherited a shamanic tradition. And he was, mm. in his earliest teaching, he was not an urban person. And in spite of what we have been told, and this is my book, Buddha Saints in India, really uh, makes this argument, although the texts themselves seem to portray the Buddha as hanging around cities and building big monasteries and uh, cultivating wealthy people, and living in collective environments. In fact, the earliest texts that we have in the tradition show him as a very, very solitary figure, a person who was willing to let go of his entire cultural and personal framework in order to find out what human experience is at its absolute most fundamental level. Mm. And Buddhism very quickly became co-opted by institutionalism in India and elsewhere. And what we have today is we have, uh, and this started actually quite early in India, even the 5th or 6th century, we have the early Buddhist traditions are rather largely institutional, even though they always have a little bit of the, the yogi thing. Mm -hmm. But Vajrayana Buddhism is different, and I view Vajrayana Buddhism as a survival of a much, much earlier, much more almost generically human, shamanic way of being a human being. Mm. And it has survived within institutionalized Buddhism and has been a little bit institutionalized itself. But there's always been a tremendous amount of tension historically between the Vajrayana shamanic practitioners and the more established people who are following other, other more institutionalized ways. Mm. Uh, there's a book by Jeffrey Samuels, wonderful book called Civilized Shamans, which makes uh, this argument for Tibet. And I really agree with the argument he makes in that book. Mm. My experience, it feels like uh, what you're saying is true. I haven't obviously studied all the texts and academically looked at that, but you always get this strange feeling that things kind of sort of got homogenized a little bit in the yeah. Vajrayana and institutionally. They want to keep a little bit of it over here, but sanitize it or something or exactly. clean it up. Yeah. So what does it look like for you, though, in practice and for your students? Um, are you just bringing back elements that were lost? Or are you reemphasizing those sorts of practices? Or are you bringing in new practices or a combination of all those? Well, Trungpa Rinpoche emphasized that there are two ways to be a Vajrayana practitioner. One is in a, in a much more uh, sanitized way, where your journey is really controlled by the rules and regulations of the tradition. And the other way to be a Vajrayana practitioner is to begin to tap into a, a much more individual human experience and to begin to awaken within oneself a much more naked and direct way of being with one's emotions, with one's body, and in one's life. And the second way is the what I think is the survival, and that's what he really taught. Mm. You know, in the human person... As he taught, you know, the, the Shambhala teachings of Chogyam Trungpa really talk about a kind of inherent spirituality 
that exists in every person who has ever lived. Mm. And there's, according to those teachings, which in my view are really the essence of Vajrayana Buddhism, although he presents them as, uh, you know, a kind of non, in a non-Buddhist way. According to those teachings, each one of us has a very individual and unique journey that we have to make in this life. And we have a calling. We have a reason for being here. And the purpose of our life is to discover who we are and why we have come here. And the interesting thing about that is these are not questions to be answered in an intellectual or conceptual way, Mm. but rather through meditation, which for him was the beginning and the middle and the end of Buddhism, we discover in ourselves a kind of infinite depth in our own awareness. We come into experiential contact with a kind of ocean of being that underlies everything that we do as conditioned people. And when we touch that depth of ourselves, we begin to relate to our own person in a much more direct way. As long as we're living on the surface and guiding our life by our own personal hopes and fears and expectations and trying to adjust ourselves to the social realm, we don't really touch our own freedom. But when we, through meditation, come into that uh, vast, open, empty space of our fundamental being, we do feel our freedom. And from the point of view of that freedom, then we can begin to experience the energy that we actually have and the person that we actually are and the imperatives of our actual life. And out of that comes a tremendous upwelling of inspiration and creativity and love for other people. And that really is the Vajrayana way to tap into our freedom and then from that freedom to be able to live completely and fully in terms of the very unique person that we are. Mm, thank you. Yeah, we just received your uh, new CD set from Sounds True. Mm. Tammy gave it to us. And uh, it looks wonderful. I haven't got to sit down and listen to it because we just got it. And it's a big one. It's uh, like 20 hours worth of audio. Oh, it's a lot more than 20. It's uh, basically... 20 per volume, maybe? It's 20 CDs over two volumes. And uh, each CD has a lecture, a description of the practice, and then a guided meditation. So it's it's huge. Tammy, I don't know how she got me to do it, but she did. (laughs) She's very persuasive, as you know. (laughs) Yes. Big. So it's called Your Breathing Body, which Mm -hmm. I think is... uh, I wanted to bring the substance we were on the subject. Sure. And for my quick glance over the the titles and everything it, mm. it seems like it's dealing with just what you're talking about uh particularly the body the breathing and subtle energy practices so mm-hmm. i wonder if you could describe what that cd set is about and if, uh, what i can tell it seems very it's unique mm-hmm. i haven't seen any other audio program out there about that and there's actually very few books that really probably hit as directly as i i imagine you do in, in this uh big cd set mm-hmm. and you also know about my book Touching Enlightenment. Have mm. you seen that book? Yeah, I mm-hmm. haven't got a... Yeah, that's a, that with the CD set. It's a good combination. Well, yeah. I mean, the the book provides the the view or the overview and the logic and the, the history and so on and the psychology of working with the body and then the CD set provides the actual practices. Mm, great. But, you know, one of the keynotes of this lineage of Chogyam Trungpa and of the Vajrayana in general is redeeming matter, redeeming the earth, redeeming Mm. the body. Mm. 
in our Western world, we have, for various reasons, we have fallen into a way of looking at our earthly human existence that's very negative. The, the whole idea that uh, ultimate reality is up in the sky somewhere is uh, actually a very strange one within the context of uh, human religiosity. And uh, you could say, well, what does it mean to redeem matter? What does it mean to redeem the body? We have these teachings of original sin that tell us that the body itself is the uh, palace of evil, that mm. the earth itself and, and down under us is the realm of the devil, mm. that sexuality and spirituality are antithetical, that uh, feminine values and virtues and uh, feminine ways of doing things are lower than masculine. The Vajrayana comes in and basically dismantles that entire way of approaching things. And it basically says that ultimate reality is down, not up. Mm. That if we want to find the, the fullest expression of wisdom and realization, we have to go down into the earth and down into the body. There's a beautiful saying in Dzogchen, which is the highest meditation tradition in Tibetan Buddhism, that enlightenment is found in the body and nowhere else. Mm. In the uh, practices that I teach, which are derived largely from Tibetan Buddhism, but also I've incorporated a lot of things I've learned from some of my shamanic friends and, and mentors, through journeying into the body, first of all, we enter into who we really are because the body contains our karma, the body contains our history, the body contains all of our experiences, whether happy or sad, and the body is the repository of our entire life. And the body itself, in terms of our whole life, that we make our journey, and we have to journey through everything that we are in order to attain realization. Enlightenment or realization is not a matter of cutting ourselves off or moving away from our life, but moving into it. Mm. And the body is the place where we can do that, and the only place we can do it. You know, one of the issues also with Tibetan Buddhism, which I think we all have to deal with as practitioners and as teachers, uh, is the tendency we all have to spiritual bypassing, which is a term invented by or coined by John Wellwood, who's a very gifted uh, mm -hmm. psychologist and has written a lot about spirituality and psychology. And spiritual bypassing is that because we have the misconception in our modern world that spirituality is a matter of separating ourselves... Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network 
is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.